0: This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching from the Gospel of Matthew, and today we're in chapter 21. The word Christian literally means little Christ, but that might be misleading. Christians don't become God. What the title really means is that Christians are copies of Christ, not just followers, but imitators of Christ. So true followers of Jesus Christ reflect his character, with the help and sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Today we'll discover four character traits of Jesus that we must reproduce if we dare to claim to be Christ followers. Because if we have no interest in these traits, then we have no interest in Jesus. My name is Brian Schmidt, and I'll have more information for you at the end of this program. But for now, let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre.
1: Find your places in Matthew 21. We're going to read verses 12 through 17, the next scene. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David, they became indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read... Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise for yourself, and he left him and went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. So I want to point out to you these four character traits here from Jesus Christ in this very important scene in Passion Week. But the first character trait that I want us to look at here from the life of Christ and seek to imitate is zeal for God, verse twelve Luke points out. That at the end of the royal procession that we call Palm Sunday, Jesus wept for Jerusalem and gives us a great insight into the heart of Christ. And when he wept for Jerusalem, he said this, Jesus, "...if you had known in this day even you the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes." For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. What a word of judgment to Jerusalem who failed to recognize the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah who came to them. And as a result, he gave this prophetic lament over Jerusalem, which actually took place in 70 AD with the siege of Jerusalem by the Roman general Titus. But that was a pagan general, and the pagan commander had military and political ambitions. On the other hand, the gentle monarch here operated by passion for God. There's no destruction here. There is simply the cleansing of the temple, Matthew describes. And actually, this is the second time John describes the first in John 2, verses 12 through 17. And he clarifies that the zeal that Christ had for God was what motivated him to do this. And although Jesus expressed righteous and sinless anger, Christ did not come to the temple to destroy it, but to purify it. And he did it because the Jews of that time demonstrated more zeal for greed than for God. Because of their disregard for heart transformation and an unbiblical emphasis on behavior compliance. Remember, this was what the Pharisees were all about. Behavior compliance. Outward observation of religion. And Jesus says, True religion, true love for God, true zeal for God produces heart transformation because it comes from a heart that recognizes our own sinfulness and our desire and need for a Savior. Now, during Passover week, pilgrims from all over the place would bring their own animals for the priests to inspect, to approve for the sacrifice. The problem is they would only accept animals that were sold by the merchants located in the outer court of the temple called the uh, court of the Gentiles. There was nothing wrong with purchasing animals for the sacrifice out of convenience because, see, these folks would come from long places and they would have to carry their own animals. There was no problem in purchasing them right there. The problem is that the priests then will charge commission from the sales. So this this was a scam that they were running there. And Jesus comes and says, that is not what this is all about. Furthermore, pilgrims needed the local currency in order to conduct these transactions, and the local currency was the, the shackle. The Roman or Greek coins were not allowed, so money changers would pay a fee to the priests and station their little booths in the outer court and charge an inflated exchange rate. Again, there's nothing wrong with conducting business. The problem is the priests were in on it. They were corrupting this whole, the whole meaning of Passover. And therefore they desecrated the temple by using the feast as an opportunity to scam people. So Jesus didn't like that. The gentle monarch confronted the situation in a not so gentle way by overturning tables and driving people out. A perfect balance between gentleness and firmness. Something that is very hard to accomplish usually. We tend to err on one of the extremes, but Jesus presents, therefore, the perfect balance motivated by zeal for God, the perfect balance between firmness and gentleness. Now, I assure you, if this scene had taken place in our culture and time, people would have captured the whole incident on their smartphone cameras, and they would have accused Jesus of violence and of offensive behavior. Someone would have tweeted something like this. Religious intolerance at its best, with the footage of Jesus driving the people out. News headlines all over the world would read, Small business owner suffers from PTSD after religious fanatic destroys their livelihood. People in the media would have called for his cancellation, censorship, and social media banishment. And the reason for that, church, is because righteous anger has that effect on our oversensitive, sinful society. The Jewish priests of that time weren't the only ones who had a questionable zeal for God. Throughout the history of the church, many people have tried to reduce Christianity to a money-making enterprise, perhaps more so today in our culture, in our Western society. That is why Scripture instructs us through the pen of Paul to Titus that elders must not be fond of sordid gain. Titus 1 verse 7, and for the same reason, the author of the book of Hebrews alerts, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. Hebrews 13 verse 5. See, Scripture is aware of our tendency of loving money, so Scripture alerts us against the love of money. The materialism of believers today grieves the heart of Christ in the same way he did back in Jerusalem with the people of God. They were overly materialistic, and they were more zeal for their own gain than for God. And I have a feeling that many churches today would be in deep trouble if Jesus paid them a visit. And I say this because we already know that Jesus knows the zeal for God that every one of us has here individually and collectively as a church. And the reason I know that is because he has revealed that in his word. For example, to the church in Ephesus, in the book of Revelation, the risen Christ writes, I know your deeds, and your toil, and your perseverance, Revelation 2, verse 2. To the church in Thyatira, I know your deeds, and your love, and faith, and service, and perseverance, Revelation 2, verse 19. To Sardis, he writes, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead, Revelation 3, verse 1. And to Philadelphia, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut. Revelation 3, verse 8, and finally to Laodicea, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were hot or cold. Revelation 3, verse 15. So church, what is the pattern here about Jesus Christ knowing exactly what goes on in his church? I know your deeds. Jesus knows exactly the motivation of our hearts. He knows exactly what drives our desire and the rationale and the, the reason behind, our, and the thought process behind everything we do. I know your deeds. The pattern is clear. People will always scrutinize our church. And by the way, that's not unique to Grace Baptist. Every church in every place is scrutinized by people. People will assign motives. They will second-guess intentions. They will criticize decisions, nitpick about the silliest things. People will render verdicts. They'll give us Yelp and Google reviews. I pay zero attention to any of those because none of that matters. Because Christ knows our deeds. He knows our flaws. He knows our faithfulness as well, collectively and individually. Therefore, church, our only concern should be, how does Jesus appraise our zeal for Him? Collectively or individually, how does He appraise your zeal for God? If He paid us a visit, would He find a congregation that duplicates His passion for God? Or will he find a place that has become a robber's den? God is not interested in our cleverness. Did you know that? He has zero interest in the latest fad for church growth. He's more interested in faithfulness because that's what he reveals in Scripture. Therefore, that should be our goal. Faithfulness will honor him and will invite his approval, the only one we should be after. Now, obviously, greed may get in the way, self-centeredness, pride... We all struggle with all of those. And if they happen, we must repent and ask Jesus to cleanse us, just like he did with the temple in Jerusalem. So today, church, let's ask Jesus on an individual level to reveal the proverbial tables in our hearts that need to be overturned, things that need to be driven out from our hearts and from our lives. Why? Because we want to duplicate Jesus' zeal for God because that's a very clear character trait that we see in the life of our great Savior, our majestic Savior whom we wish to imitate. But I want to point out to you a second character trait that we must imitate here if we are to duplicate the life of Christ. Devotion to Scripture, verse 13. Jesus has a high view of the Word of God, and that is very evident. He can cleanse the complex in Jerusalem there, first of all, because he is greater than the temple, Matthew tells us in Matthew 12, verse 6, Jesus says, I, someone greater than the temple is here. In other words, that is the symbol of Jewish religion. The very reason for your existence is now here, the Messiah. So someone greater than the temple is here. And yet, he justifies everything we do by bringing up scripture. For example, he quotes Isaiah 56, verse 7. The end of that passage reads, My house will be called a house of prayer for all the people's. So Jesus is paraphrasing Isaiah 56, verse 7. He's bringing Scripture, saying, I'm doing this because this is prophetic. And not only that, he goes to Jeremiah 7, verse 11. And he quotes that passage as well. He paraphrases the passage, which reads, Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Again, church, the pattern is clear. By bringing these Old Testament passages, Jesus models the type of devotion to Scripture that you and I must pursue. Like him, we should explain everything we do or say or refrain from doing or saying from the Bible, from Scripture. For example, as believers, we gather for corporate worship just because it's tradition? No. We do it because it is written. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. Hebrews 10, verses 24 through 25. So we don't gather here on Sundays just because this is something that we've always been doing. No, it's because it is written. Likewise, we refrain from causing division in the body of Christ, Why? Because it is written, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 2. And that wars against our natural tendencies. None of us does this naturally. Have you noticed that? Therefore, it is written, do not cause division. That is why we obey Scripture. We go against our own personal tendencies to honor Scripture. One more. Why do we study God's Word? Pastor, why aren't you preaching about politics? Why are you preaching about Super Bowl? Why, why don't you make me feel good? Why aren't you preaching a message that tickles my ears or makes me think that I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread? The answer to that, church, is because it is written. Preach the word! Be ready, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. We follow orders from the Bible. It is written, therefore we do it. Or we refrain from doing. So you get the point. Our lives, because of Jesus Christ, that's the pattern that he shows us, our lives should reflect a because-it-is-written philosophy. If we claim to follow him, we must therefore reproduce his devotion to Scripture and embrace a biblically-centered worldview. Again, we already have a me-centered worldview. We are already born with that. Therefore, we must be transformed by the renewing of our minds and embrace a biblically-centered worldview. So, friends, next time someone asks you, are you really going to forgive him for that? Or her for that? Your answer should be, Yes, because it is written. If you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive you. Matthew 6, verse 15. Quote the Bible to your flesh, if necessary. Speak to yourself. Make people think you're crazy, if necessary. And put your devotion to His Word to practice. You might have to. You might have to say to your own flesh, I'm not doing this because it is written. Or, I'm going to stop doing this because it is written. Oh, Lord, please change my heart because it is written. But let me show you a third character trait that we must duplicate. If we claim to follow Jesus Christ and imitate him, not only there's a zeal for God here that we must pursue, a devotion to Scripture, but also love for the outcast. Because that's what we have in verses 14 through 16. A love for the outcast. Now, Matthew now places more people in the scene. We met the greedy, now we meet the needy. Not only does Jesus cleanse the temple, displaying now his messianic credentials, his divinity, his authority to do that because he is greater than the temple, he is the God-man, he also now shows compassion for the people in that society that no one would have approached, no one would have touched them because they're considered outcast, they're considered unclean, the lame and the blind. Matthew makes it clear that some of those came to see Messiah, to see the king who came riding on a donkey. But also, the author also shows that children are in this scene now, and most likely preteens. These are not infant babies, according to the translation of the word for children here in Greek. And they are worshiping him. They are expressing messianic hope. They're repeating the same exact sentence that the people from the previous scene were shouting about Jesus Christ. Hosanna to the Son of David. The reason for that, church, is because children are doing what they do best, which is to repeat the behavior of the adults close to them. Now, although this is not the main point of the passage, this interaction here provides an important lesson for us parents. Your children will learn to worship God primarily from you. Not from Sunday school, not from their youth pastor, or any other pastor or Christian school, and certainly not public school. So there is no reason why we should delegate Christian education to someone else other than parents, because children will learn to love God and have a zeal for Christ and for Scripture in the way we live our lives. By the way, not by what we teach, but what we demonstrate at home. It is unfair, unreasonable, unloving in an unbearable burden to force your children to demonstrate a godliness that they do not see at home. So don't expect them to have any appreciation for or commitment to the local church if assembling with other believers and serving in the local congregation has never been a priority for you. It does not work that way. They will follow our behavior more than they follow our words. You can lecture them all you want, but they're going to repeat the behavior, the love for God that they see in you. But let's get back to the main point of this passage here. There's a principle in this story that we have already observed several times in the Gospel of Matthew. And then it's here again, Christ is motivated by love and compassion. And He always stops what He is doing in order to attend the needs of the afflicted. That is a pattern in the life of Christ. He cannot ignore the plight of the needy or the afflicted, it, it's, it goes against his nature to do so. So he stops what he's doing here to heal people in the temple, and to listen to them, and to embrace them. Therefore, those of us who follow him must demonstrate the same compassion for the marginalized in our society, whether they are the destitute, the widows, the socially awkward, whatever the case is, but certainly the sinners. We must love sinners in such a way that we will embrace them and say, come on, we want you to hear about Jesus Christ, but we want you to change because God wants you to change. He has done so in my life. He's ready to do it in yours too if you will come to him in faith. We can't heal people, but we can give them our greatest treasure. We lead them to Christ. Now, he may not take care of their needs immediately, or he may decide to not fix their problems. It happens very often. But he will save those who come to him in faith. But there's one more observation here from verses 14 through 15 based on the outrage of these priests. Remember, these are the religious professionals. And here's the lesson we learn, church. When you do what God wants you to do, for example, lead people to Jesus, demonstrate grace to the sinner, live by a biblical worldview, exalt the name of Christ, when you do what God wants you to do, you will infuriate religious people. There is a simple explanation for that. They crave the glory that belongs to Christ alone. And you're not going to give it to them. Your zeal for God bothers them because they would rather you have zeal for them. Follow me. Follow my system. Follow my opinions. My recommendations. Be my followers. But you're not going to do that. You're going to demonstrate devotion to Scripture, not to their opinions. You will replicate the love for the outcast that Jesus has and therefore... You will infuriate religious folks. Just like the chief priests became indignant because people follow Jesus instead of them. Which leads us then to the fourth character trait of Christ we must duplicate. Zeal for God, devotion to scripture, love for the outcast, and finally, according to this scene, verses 16 through 17, commitment to the truth. Jesus' answer to his opponents here in verse 16, he said to them, so he answers their question and then, proposes another question, and that whole system communicates his utter disregard for their approval. He is committed to the truth. He did not argue with them. There is no debate. He did not start a shouting match or a battle of wills. He simply quoted scripture once again, and he left the scene. The Bible says it. That's the end of the discussion. And here's the lesson for us. From the life of Christ, there's a time to turn tables in righteous indignation. At other times, it is just better to state the truth and walk away. Or maybe not even saying anything, just walking away and letting God take care of the rest. Ecclesiastes teaches us that there's an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven. Ecclesiastes 3, starting in verse 1, and there's a list of those example of events. But here's what I don't want you to miss, church. And there are several of those throughout the Gospels. Jesus' divine sarcasm. <laughs> the scribes copied manuscripts for a living. That, that was their job. So they were copying manuscripts manually from one to the next. And they, they, they did this for a living. Jesus asked them, have you never read? Is really an insult to their intelligence. A divinely inspired insult. Because of course they read scripture. They read the whole thing from scroll to scroll. Because that was their job. They had read Psalm 8, verse 2, the portion of Scripture that Christ is quoting to them. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have established strength. Of course they read that. That's not the point. They did not overlook the passage. They simply failed to see the obvious because of the hardness of their hearts. And that is what happens when people's hearts are so hard, they are so centered in their own selves, their own opinions, what they want to do What they want God to bless them with, so God, you will bless me no matter what. This is what I want you to do. Here's my plan. You bless me. You follow me instead of me following you. When your heart is that hard, you will not see the obvious in Scripture. That is exactly what these guys were doing. The scribes and the chief priests should have been the one crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. Presumably the children then in this scene understood the truth. They were following the behavior of the adults around them, but they demonstrate childlike saving faith. Now, we want to reproduce the same commitment to the truth that Jesus displays here. So next time someone asks you your opinion about anything, your attitude should be, have you never read what scripture says? What is your opinion about politics? Well, have you never read Romans 13, for example? Well, what is your view about uh, the family and marriage and homosexuality and all of that? Your answer should be simple. Have you never read what Scripture says concerning all of these? These things have all been settled. What is your opinion about what the church should be doing? Have you never read the epistles? Have you never read the Book of Revelation, specifically the first three chapters, about basically instructions for the church? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing? Have you never read what Scripture says? Because that is our commitment to the truth. And church, every time you express that commitment, the world will hate you for it. But you know what? We're not greater than our master. It does not matter who hates you if you have already been loved by God through Jesus Christ. The religious people in this scene had a wrong view of salvation. It was salvation by works, salvation by outward compliance to a system. They failed to realize that good works don't save... Religion doesn't save. Behavior modification doesn't save. Church attendance doesn't save. Baptism doesn't save. Because salvation belongs to the Lord. Have you never read Psalm 3 verse 8? Have you never read salvation is from the Lord? Jonah 2 verse 9. Have you never read that there is salvation in no one else? For there is no name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And his name is Jesus. He is the son of David. He is the gentle monarch who brings reconciliation between God and man. He has zeal for God, devotion to Scripture, love for the outcast, and commitment to the truth, all of which are character traits we must imitate if we claim to follow Jesus Christ.
0: If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. Plus, we're always looking for people just like you to help us spread the gospel around the world. This broadcast has provided to you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it, or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time... This is Truth with Grace.